Abolition. Abolition. Seven in the morning, they kicking down my mama's door. Now tell me what is this motherfucking drama for? Can a nigga get rest at the rest without the stress? Then they put the Glock to my chest back. Think for a switch or a pop. Off to the clink with this bitch ass cap. They got a nigga locked like the dread on my head jack. And if I try to fight back, well then I'm dead black. I got the right to win the tourney in the state salad. They got the right to try to burn me if I play balance. I know the game, so I just roll with the procedure. Illegal search and seizure. Something that they doing at their leisure. Down at the station, interrogation is taking place. Overcrowded jails, but for me to make the space. Tell the devil to his face, he can suck my dick. It's the whole black race that they fucking with. Come to find my crime was letting brothers know this time on the devil and stopping them from meeting swine. And plus my prior record still my fate. One for all and then God we trust. Got me sent up state. But still I won't bite my tongue. I just write tight shit to incite the young to fight the one who keeps them on the level that's minimal. And that's the number one. Sanctions that kick in after you serve your time. 
70% are lifetime bans, and more than half are employment-related. We're talking about banning people from an entire sector, insurance, real estate, education, health care, finance. If you have a felony conviction, you are banned from health care and from real estate. For life. For life. That's just the economic impact, right? The social impact is even worse. I have a record. 20 years ago, fresh out of high school, was involved with a robbery, right? Did seven years, got out, been 11 years since I've been out. My kids are two and four. I'm getting soaked up because it hits home. My kids are two and four. And we got a schedule from summer, for summer school. And there were field trips on there. And they said, what parents want to chaperone the field trips? I can't chaperone the field trips. My wife is 46 years old. I'm 38. We want to have a girl. But it's a high-risk pregnancy. So I said, hey, let's figure out adoption. We can never adopt a kid. I love, I, I love the fact that we live in a country where we talk about second chances and redemption and one nation under a God. But, like, my soul can be redeemed. But that record stays there for life. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard Grand Nubians claiming I'm a criminal. And that was followed up by U.S. Rep. Jim Jordan on the problem with Jon Stewart. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms and also Amazon Music. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Well, let me backtrack for a second. I am live in the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, <laughs> along with Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Yusuf. Uh, like you said, we're here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina. We're also joined by uh, abolitionist out of North Carolina and supporter John Knipple. Uh, is here at the center with us, as well as Travel Rain. That's right. Hey, John. Hey, Yusuf. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you here. Thank you. It's quite an honor for me. So last week we were joined by New Jersey slavery abolitionists Dennis Fibo and Anton Henshaw to discuss abolitionist efforts in the state with ACR 125 and SCR 135. This week, we dig deeply into the term and practice of involuntary servitude. What is it? How it works? Who it applies to? Why it's even legal? And how it's simultaneously illegal for every other nation in the world except the U.S. We'll be joined by slavery abolitionist Samuel Nathaniel Brown, original author of the California Abolition Act, which he wrote while incarcerated. He's one of the lead advocates for ACA 8, the 2023 California Abolition Act. California and North Carolina are the only two states that abolished slavery in their state constitutions, but added an exception to protect the practice of involuntary servitude. As always, we ask why, then provide real answers. 
And as always, we'll also bring the words of our abolitionist ancestors back to life for a new generation in our Bridging the Gap segment. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Matt, how was your week? <laughs> man, that's a big question today. Uh, man, it has been uh, hectic, to say the least, you know, uh, as we've had our state operations meeting or an, our network meeting, rather, for the Abolish Slavery National Network. Uh, mm-hmm. We had the bill in North Carolina submitted uh, just this past Tuesday, so their bill was right. submitted then with six sponsors already signed on in addition to the author. Uh, we've been speaking more with the civil rights attorneys in Alabama, trying to move those cases forward and getting plaintiffs uh, that will represent those cases. Uh, so, you know, we're looking to set precedence in stage two of this effort where we challenge the badges and incidents of slavery without the protection of an exception clause that allows slavery to be legal. And Alabama seems like a good place to do that. Um, of course, uh, we've got a couple of trips that we're scheduling to to uh, come up in the next couple of weeks. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. uh, next week and the week after, we will probably be doing replays as um, I'll be out along with the co-directors for state operations for the Abolish Slavery National Network. We're going to Louisiana for their press conference as of their bill's introduction. And then from there, we're going to the 25th anniversary of BISC um, in mm-hmm. uh, Nevada. And we'll be gone for a couple of weeks doing that work, uh, getting the word out and uh, championing these anti-slavery bills that are coming out. So it has been very hectic. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, Uh, we're constantly moving forward and working on this issue. I I did want to give a shout out to Brother Jay Jordan, man. What he said was profound. He said, "My, my soul can be redeemed, but this is going to be with me for life You have been right. Like the song says That classic hip hop song uh, Claiming I'm a criminal uh, Says that's what they want you to be for life A criminal Even after you paid your dues And served your time You walk out without the rights and uh, Of citizenship Or sometimes even human rights um, You know right. we, When we had the brother on a couple of weeks ago And he broke it down Or last week even with uh tone when he was saying, you know, I'm partially free, I'm out, but I'm on parole for life. And that means that he doesn't have the rights that you and I possess. And at any moment, they can come and get him for any reason. They don't even need a reason. Just make one up out of thin air. Just talking to you. Talking Mm -hmm. to you who have served time yourself is a violation of probation. Right. So it's a dangerous situation for the people that are involved in this, and we really respect and appreciate the efforts that they're making and the risks they're taking. Yeah, we really do. And, you know, uh, Jim Jordan, you know, I'm no fan of Jim Jordan, you know, with all the other things that he's involved in, you know, in the house. But, yeah, it was just really surprising to hear him talk about something like this. Yeah, that's not Jim Jordan. That's Jay Jordan. Jay Jordan Jay is Jordan. formally right. Ah, you know what? I I misspoke because yes. I in my opening I said it was Jim Jordan. So yes, this is not U.S. Rep. Jake Jim Jordan. This is Jay Jordan, completely different person. Yes, there, a black man. That, was, that would explain um, why <laughs> you know it's a different approach. 
Yes, he's a so, black man who was formerly incarcerated for over 20 years, I believe, and he was on the problem with John Stewart, giving his lived experience about what he's dealing with after being incarcerated. Um, I'm looking forward, though, to our guest who's coming in today to rejoin us. He's been here a number of times. Yeah. Uh, we've documented his story, as a matter of fact, right here on this program. And he's also got a new program that's going to be sponsored by Abolition Today that's coming up soon. And that's uh, Brother Samuel Nathaniel Brown. Uh, so let's go ahead and introduce him and bring him in. For sure. So once again, we have our brother Samuel Nathaniel Brown. He's the founder of the 10P program, Theory of Emotional Illiteracy-Based Criminality. Uh, trying to find his bio. Uh, we have so much to say about him. He's definitely the original author of ACA3, written while he was incarcerated, and he'll speak about that when he's on. Uh, we want to welcome him back to the show. It's his I, home. I have a short version. It's not like he's coming back. You know, so oh, welcome man. home, Brother Samuel. Welcome home. Yes, sir. Thank you, Brother Yusuf. What's up, Big Brother Max? It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. This is home. Um, Amen. Ready to ready to have this dialogue about involuntary servitude and why it's an everybody issue, you know? Exactly. Right. Uh, Brother Samuel Brown is one of the lead advocates for ACA three, ACA eight rather, which is the 2023 California Abolition Act. Uh, California and North Carolina are the only two states in the union that abolished slavery in their state constitution but allowed an exception to protect the practice of involuntary servitude. Uh, and we've got both of those here, states here represented right now. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I'm going to dig in deep into this issue, because there's a lot of discussion about this forced labor and labor. We've got some clips that we'll be playing. We've got some information that we're going to share. Hey, and hey Max, you may over, need to adjust your mic- microphone. In what way? Uh, if you're hearing that hissing sound, that's not me. I think that's Sam. Oh, yeah, that might be me. Let me. Let me. Okay, yeah, we have something that's kind of like. Not really. It sounds like you're driving. And the window's open. Okay. All right. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Uh, yes, so that's some of the reasons that we're going to try to. Uh, give you a clear understanding of involuntary servitude apart from its connection to slavery. We're going to talk about the legal aspect of it, how it's applied to people, and uh, really as a way to help these two campaigns and the people that are listening in now to understand better of what it is they're dealing with. So, brothers, uh, Sam, welcome back, as Yusuf said here. Um, and uh, if there's anything you want to add to your introduction, feel free. And, and if you want to comment on what we heard in the opening track, uh, because that reflects you as well, those statements, uh, feel free to do that as well. Yeah, a great deal of everything they said I was able to relate to. And, you know, there's nothing like sitting in that cell trying to find meaning in response to what the brother was saying in the opening track. You know, it's nothing like trying to find meaning in, inside that cell where every day that bed is attached. And you have to forgive me because I am driving, but I'm about to pull over. But every day 
that bed is attached to the wall. So you can only get up on one side of the bed every day, and it's always the wrong side. And if that's mm-hmm. not bad enough, then you have these people breathing down your neck, you know, acting as if their job is to punish you. And for them, that punishment is like mental tor- torment, anguish, and then forcing you to do a job that you can't benefit from in, in the long run. And so it's, it's such a misconception about what's taking place in the carceral system from those who are actually in it, those who, you know, have loved ones and they learn about it, and those who have no idea. Because I talk to so many people, you know, it's a lot of good-hearted people out there who don't have anybody that's directly related to them dealing with mass incarceration. But the more they learn about the underpinnings of the system, the more they want to get involved and see what they can do to help. So that's why conversations like these are so important. Yes, especially in the climate that we find ourselves now, where as a nation we are pointing fingers at other countries saying that this is illegal what you're doing. If you have prison labor to make your goods and services, it's illegal. And they're pointing out the laws, they're seizing goods at the ports that may have used forced labor in them, uh, and yet we're doing it right here. It's very hypocritical. You know, I I did some research and I found out – a number of definitions that come from various places. Let me start with the first one that comes from U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And you can find this right at CPT, C- cbp.gov. It's right off the Your website. research, it says, Your research it says, is phenomenal. <laughs> thank you, brother. It says, what is forced labor? CBP defines forced labor as all work or service which is exacted from any person under the menace of any penalty for its non-performance and for which the worker does not offer work or service voluntarily. Indentured labor is defined as work or service performed pursuant to a contract, the enforcement of which can be accomplished by process or penalties. This includes forced or indentured child labor. So that's straight off of the government website, what is labor to them. And there's another definition I want to share real quick that came from, um, according to the ILO, and the ILO is the International Labor Organization. And they say, what Mm -hmm. is forced labor? According to the ILO, forced labor is defined as all work or service, which is exacted from any person under the menace of any penalty. Now, that's what I just got from... The uh, Border Patrol, right? And for which the said person has not offered himself voluntarily. Uh, They go a little further, though. They say, ILO Forced Labor Convention 29, 1930, Article 2-1. The term forced labor includes slavery and practices similar to slavery, as well as bonded labor or debt bondage. The ILO definition generally applies to work or service exacted by governments and public authorities as well as private bodies and individuals so see they're pointing us at governments and public authorities as well as the private individual and they have several elements they said which individually or in conjunction can indicate a forced labor situation threats or actual physical harm and I know, Sam, mm-hmm. that has happened to you personally. Uh, restriction right. of movement. 100%. Confinement. Right. 
restriction of movement or confinement to the workplace or a limited area. Uh, and that happens in these factories in these prisons. Debt bondage. Withholding wages or ex- right. <laughs> See? Withholding wages or excessive wage reduction that violates previously made agreements. Retention of passports and identity documents and threats of denunciation to the authorities when the worker has an irregular immigration status. So these are the two definitions right here in the United States of America. I'll go ahead and pass it over to you, Sam, for any comments. I um I think it's great how you, you, you put forth two two well known organizations definitions. Because right before the show I took the time to do my own personal connotation so I could just break it down, you know, because it's important to do what we're doing right now. Like you, you give it to them in the textbook form and then I'll just give it to them in the basic form. So for, we catch everybody in between. Right. And so mm-hmm. involuntary servitude refers to a situation where a, por- a person is forced to work against their will, often through coercion or threat of harm. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. many of the historical examples we see are like involuntary servitude and, and uh, or chattel slavery and serfdom. That's what comes to mind oftentimes, but they're more contemporaries. That was like, like what Max is talking about right now. You know, when we talk about, about our, our, our brothers and sisters that immigrate from other places, you know, how they mm-hmm. forced to work in the labor, like, uh, in the factories, like you were just talking about a minute ago. Um, the global supply chain, many workers, especially in developing countries, they forced to work in those factories or those mines for, for hours on hours on top of hours in, like, hazardous conditions. You know what I'm saying? They have no pay, no way to leave. And this is akin to what we've seen in our prison system. You know, this is, and we just drawing these parallels to show, you know, one evil is all evil. It's all bad. And it's the same people all around the globe, these same corporations, whether they're taking advantage of, of, a, of, of people in, in, a, in a, a third world country, or they're taking advantage of people over here in America, part of a demographic that's always, seeing themselves being patrolled by police in their neighborhoods and getting targeted with tough-on-crime laws. It's these same corporations that are benefiting from them, you know, from, the, from these labor forces once they get people in these involuntary servitude situations. So if I would add anything, I would just add that, you know, that's what it looks like in real time. And so when you go to the prison system and then you have women in, in the California Institution of Women um, doing, being a call center for someone like AT&T, or, or another major corporation, FedEx or somebody, and you, you think you're talking to an operator that's somewhere in, like, Michigan or in your city, and you're talking to somebody that's incarcerated. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so, yeah, so many different sectors of the economy and, and here in America and around the world that benefit from involuntary servitude that it really is something that everybody should be concerned about because we can do better than this, and we should. Exactly. Um, slavery and involuntary servitude are crimes against humanity that are basically illegal everywhere, according to the U.S.'s own laws. Uh, it is literally a federal crime for labor under 18 U.S. Code 1589. I, I want to read that, but before I read it, I want to give Yusuf an opportunity to chime in, and then I'll read it, and then we'll play what we're going to use as basically the centerpiece of today's conversation and i think uh everybody who's listening should have a notebook and a pencil ready because you're going to need to take notes on what you hear so yusuf you want to chime in you know it's so hard when you know you're batting third and you have two heavy hitters in front of you where both of you have already hit home runs you know uh 
I I want to reserve some time for later because I want to get into like the legal history as how involuntary servitude proceeded through the courts and what was the court's position when it came to involuntary servitude and then also some acts that it, that were enacted over the years also furthering uh, American hypocrisy. So we can go ahead with that track if you want to, Max. Well, let me read this real quick about 18 U.S. Code 1589. Uh, it says that Section 1589 makes it a federal crime to knowingly provide or obtain the labor or service of a person using force, threats of force, physical restraint, or fraud, otherwise known simply as forced labor. If you are accused or of forcing someone to work for you, or if you are accused of helping someone else force someone to work for them, uh, mm-hmm. also known as trafficking labor, you could be charged with the crime of forced labor under USC 1589. This statute fa- falls under peonage, slavery, and trafficking crimes, and anyone involved or accused of involvement with this type of illegal conduct will need experienced legal representation. The relevant laws that make this conduct a federal crime find under 18 U.S. Codes Chapter 77, which contains numerous statutes. So there's numerous laws that you can get, and the penalty is up to 20 years in prison for doing this. Now, with that being said, I want you to hear what we're going to play next. Uh, it, it's very powerful, and it's very rare. Uh, I believe that this has been purged from the Internet. I was only define, able to find one copy, which I had downloaded some time ago. And what it is is an advertisement from the Department of Justice appealing to national and international corporations to use prison labor in the United States. And you can hear them break it down in their evil-ass way yourself right now. It's going to be accompanied by the instrumental of uh, Destiny Child's song, No, 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 if you remember that. Uh, And I use that specifically because they're saying it's illegal for everybody else, but here they are saying, come do it. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. With Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, our guest today is Samuel Nathaniel Brown, and in the house is John Knipple. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. that we've seen has exceeded what we originally expected, and it's been a pleasant surprise. I have a workforce that does not have car problems or babysitting problems, etc. They're always here, and they're always willing to come to work. We are literally running 94 to 96% productivity every day. When we have available skilled labor, we can ramp up in a very short period of time. The situation here allows us to control our costs far more than we could in the past. It's a win-win situation for everyone. Growth is one indicator of business success, but growth is a double-edged sword. 
It poses challenges as well as opportunities. In tight labor markets, where can you find additional workers and space for more equipment? How do you manage the ebb and flow of production? Or find additional staff for peak periods? The solution? The resources inside America's correctional facilities. Bring your business to our labor. Benefit from industrial space that is built for production. If you are looking for a dependable labor pool with diverse capabilities, look no further. A select group of energized, motivated inmates are eager to work. Partnerships between private business and the nation's correctional institutions are on the rise and have proven successful. Ample production space. Flexibility in production scheduling. These competitive advantages are helping businesses to grow nationwide. There is not enough uh, folks that will do this type of work in this country. So therefore we're bringing bringing back this industry that historically has been going out of this country and we're putting it you know, inside the walls and it's, it's absolutely a, a perfect idea. The work that can be performed is diverse. Manufacturing, assembly, packaging, services. Hard working and reliable, inmates show up for work every day voluntarily. Security and safety are a priority. Inmates are interviewed and hired selectively, and their work habits and institutional behavior are closely monitored to maintain a safe working environment. These partnerships between correctional industries and business owners are set up to achieve one goal, long-term business success. Escott Industries um, is a cable manufacturing organization. We manufacture cable assemblies primarily for the telecommunications industry. So I've been uh, working with the Prison uh, Industries Association for approximately five years. From a profitability standpoint, we can't ask for anything more. When we have a facility such as this, where we have available skilled labor, uh, that availability means that if we need an additional 10 to 15 to 20 individuals in a very short period of time, we can bring those individuals on overnight. We've been extremely satisfied with the inmates. Um, any organization that is really looking to, to increase uh, their operation, to expand their operation, really needs to take a good hard look at prison industries. It was one of the best moves that we've ever made. Your production is brought right inside the correctional facility. A business plan is developed to meet your production, space, and labor requirements. If you need flexibility in scheduling, or need to adjust the labor output to accommodate peaks and valleys in demand, it can be arranged. We can move materials in and out of the facility as needed. We've had no problem getting the number of inmates that we needed for the job. There are multiple applications for each job that we have. Their attention to detail uh, and their productivity uh, is really better than what we see in the civilian uh, workforce. Partnerships between correctional industries and private business are a rapidly growing segment of a multi-billion dollar industry in America. Partnerships with private companies are possible in almost every state. Crawley, which is an international company, holds a worldwide patent on a method of manufacturing furniture which is unique in the world. The inmates we have found to be far more willing to learn, far more willing to give of himself to 
improve of himself. Obviously, uh, when a industry is looking to relocate from wherever they are manufacturing or where they're considering to manufacture, a lot of various uh, parameters are taken into account. In respect of ourselves, uh, we did consider in relocating to China or to the Far East where labour costs are exceptionally low, but we found that in the end of the day, we had to be close to our marketplace. The decision to relocate was primarily that of a financial one. These business partnerships represent a win-win proposition. Business gains a competitive labor force, and inmates learn valuable job skills. If your business is expanding, or if you are experiencing a labor shortage, consider inmate labor. Starting a new enterprise, or bringing business back to the United States, or relocating from a foreign country, look at inmate labor. If you are investing in automation, but need additional labor to step up production, these men and women are up to the task. Bring us your business challenge. Chances are, there's a nearby correctional facility that can supply dependable labor, enhance your competitiveness, and increase your profitability. Be part of a progressive business solution. Call us for an appointment. You just heard the Prison Industry Partnership ad from the Department of Justice. And that was accompanied by No, 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 remixed by Destiny's Child, the instrumental. And I know the Beehive is out there going crazy right now. You know, but uh, wow. 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 That's what I have to say. You know, it's, it's so much that we can unpack from that audio. So many little uh, slick phrases he was using, and then I, I can't wait for us to break it down. So welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parsons, Yusuf Hassan, our guest Samuel Nathaniel Brown, and in the house, none other than John Knipple. Uh Sam. We got some inmates who are motivated, excited, and eager to do your job, to do your work right. for you. Right? For real. Mm-hmm. And it's killing me. You know, in, in, in the Anti-Violence, Faith, and Accountability Project and in the 10P program, we talk about, and y'all, we just talked about it on the show before, that slavery mm-hmm. was, was really the first form of automation, Right? Because right. what it did was right. it, it cut down on the jobs that they, they didn't want to do and created new ones they did, which was supervisorial jobs, and we became a machine, right? And mm-hmm. he just said it right there. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're looking for any form of automation or you need additional workers, and we go right back to what we know, which is, which is slavery, man. And <laughs> it, it's so interesting. It's so much I want to say about that. I'm, and I'm just thinking about that, and I'm tied it into what I've been learning about California's history. So what you just shared about North Carolina and California being the only two to maintain involuntary servitude. So we know that in 1849, 
is when the southern slave owners introduced the idea of California becoming a part of the Union so that they could expand slaveholding territory. Then, mm-hmm. in 1850, it became a part of the Union. But what a lot of people don't know, so they know about, um, I think it's what, John Burnett, Peter Burnett, the first governor of California. They know about him and his, his wife's right. wife himself. But mm-hmm. there was a third governor. There was a third governor. See, there's a lot of talk right now about James Madison Estelle, who, you know, who, who oversaw over there at the beginning of San Quentin, and about how he came from another state. He was already into making money off of prisons, and he came here and became part of the legislature and helped construct the prison system in California. But, and you know, Jamelia put me up on him, put all of us up on him. But I was like, well, somebody had to precede him because he didn't just come and put himself into power, right? And so right. when I took it a step right. further, when I took it a step back, I found the governor, this guy named um, John Bigler, and he was the Bigler. third governor of California from 1852 to 1856. And it was during his tenure that California, from he oversaw the use of prison labor in the state's mines and public works, right, all of their public projects. And I was also able to get a whole bunch of quotes and dates and times, and I'm, I'm about to bring all of this stuff back to the coalition this week, but I'm sharing it here first with the whole world. So um, in his inaugural address in 1852, this guy actually stated, just like the people we were just listening to, he said the state should avail itself of the labor of its prisoners and, while punishing crime, make it subserve the interests of the community. In other mm-hmm. words, while we punish them, we should make money off of them. Then... In 1852, he signed the act to provide for the government and regulation of the state prison, which established a board of directors to oversee the state prison system. So this is the guy who is the actual architect of mass incarceration, for real, for real, here in California. He's the reason why voluntary servitude is still a part, and slavery is at the core of the penal system here in California. 1853, now look, back to back, he's nonstop, 1851, 1852, 1853. He appointed commissioners to investigate the state prison system found that the prison labor was being used to extract gold from the state's mines and that the prisoners were being treated poorly. However, he disagreed with the commission's findings and continued to support the use of the prison labor in the mines. <laughs> right? Mm. This, this was all the way back to the beginning. And so what we find today is an unbroken thread, you know, an unbroken thread. So when we talk about connecting the dots and when we talk about the voluntary servitude of slavery, I'm going to say this and be quiet, too. The reason why we are having this show, for everybody out there that's listening, the reason why we're having this discussion about involuntary servitude is because we need everybody out there to know that it is synonymous with slavery. And yes. there's this discussion. People are trying to have this discussion now, which is divide and conquer. Well, oh, well slavery ended, and involuntary servitude is something else. No, they are the same thing. So we don't want anybody to have the wool pulled over their eyes. So this show is about educating you so that you can understand that the voluntary servitude has already been ruled by the courts to be synonymous with slavery. You know what I'm saying? Any form and fashion. So that's what this is about today. And I just wanted to really make that clear, y'all. Um, that track that we heard uh, with the admission of guilt is literal evidence that could be used in charges of crimes against humanity. I mean, we, here right. we are talking about how this is all illegal, but that's an advertisement made by our government appealing not just to use labor to clean your cells or pick up garbage on the street, but to make things like solar cells uh, for uh, independent companies. You heard the man say 
that on a you know scale of profitability, this is the best decision we ever made. Now, why would he say that? Ever because he's getting nearly free labor to do that. And the audacity of what they was talking about when the woman came out and said, "We don't. Have, we have a, a workforce that doesn't have any babysit problems. They don't have car problems, and they're willing to come to work every day voluntarily." Well, if it was voluntarily, then what the hell is a 115? Because they exist all over the country, those types of penalties if you refuse to work. Right now in Alabama, Governor Ivey has said that when it comes to taking away your good, earned good time from inmates, if you organize a prison labor work strike, that's the equivalent in points of rape or murder in the prison. Same in New Jersey. Same in New Jersey. They said there was 94% production capacity and saying, you know, uh, bring your uh, business to our labor. They said that because they can't bring the labor to the business because they're in a prison. So you just bring the business to the labor. We'll build a facility for you. We'll get the people you need to work. And you know what? They work harder than the guys outside. So if you're outside in a union job trying to earn a living just enough to pay your bills, take care of your family, and work 10 hours a day, sleep eight hours at night, and go repeat it over and over again, you don't work that hard. It's prisoners that will really put in the work. They'll work till their fingers fall off for you. And why? Because it's forced freaking labor. Because if they say no, then you're going to punish them for that. It's freaking amazing. You and he, he had so many slick little phrases that he was saying, like, uh, the inmates are learning valuable skills, you know, because we know that it's a common theme when they start talking about labor on the inside. It's all, you know, they have this impression like everyone in prison never had a job before, you know, so it's like you tr- you're humanizing them by teaching them how to work a job, or they say stuff like, they're up to the task. That was something else that he said in there. And we can move your product anytime. We can structure, you know, the work schedule however you want it. Whether you need it in the middle of the night or you need it all day, we can we can provide that for you. You know, it was just it, it was it was very uh, intense what they were pitching out there, like saying, look, we have this workforce. That can't be com- no other workforce can compare to this, and we know historically, you know, many things. When we think of like Coal Creek mining in uh, Tennessee, where the miners were put out of work because they had all the miners in prison, and it led to the Coal Creek Wars. They call it a Coal Creek Riot because of the competing factors. And one thing I just wanted to tack on from what you said, Sam, about 1852 and Bigler. 1852 is when San Quentin was opened, and it was originally opened as a private prison that was going to run as a factory. And once it became a failed experiment, that's when the state took it over. I believe it was in 1856 or 57 that the state took it over. So I just wanted to add that portion to it. Uh, I'll pass it to you, Sam. Hey, Sam, if you don't mind... When, when you're not on the mic, would you mute your phone? Because the background noise is uh, very distorted. Thank you. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. All um, right, go ahead, Sam. I just wanted to say, man, in, in the spirit of debunking, you know, that whole 
that whole, you know, drive a happy to work. There's no no coercion, no harm. Right. As, as we talked about a moment ago, I just did 24 years. And if I were to refuse to work, which which I could have, you know, and I, and I, I gave it a go, I would have got like a 15, not like, I would have received a 15-year denial. That's the modern-day whip that Max was talking about. That's the 115, right? And that's how they compel people to do these jobs that they otherwise would not do. Then when they talk about the skills, you know, when you talk about these skills, you're selling this stuff like this to the public. But the people on the inside are working these jobs. I could have a job for 10 years, and then when I get out, I won't be able to put a list on my resume. I won't be able to list the Department of Corrections as a, as a contact of someone that they can call. I won't be able to say that I have these skills. Oftentimes, like they were talking about at the beginning of the, the, the show, I'm disqualified from even participating in certain fields of work. That's no right. one, everybody That's talks right. about the firefighters, right? Everyone talks about the firefighters because, you know, everybody loves firefighters. They're heroes. But there's another cast of workers inside the prisons in California called ADA workers. And ADA workers, they're basically like caregivers inside these prisons. They, they, they man, people that, you know, have accidents on themselves or in their wheelchairs on themselves, they go clean up behind them. They help them get in the showers. They help them wash their clothes. They help them go to the canteen, to the medical, to the, to the child hall, all of that. They, these men and women are caregivers on the yard because there's not enough medical staff to take care of all of the people behind the walls who need medical attention. And no one talks about this part of the population. Then when they get out, they can't get those jobs. No one talks about that. You can have that job inside the pen for 10 years, and I'm good enough to do it on the plantation, but I'm not good enough to do it upon my release. Right. And so, I mean, we can, do, we can sit here and debunk this, that, that, that arrogant sales pitch that we just heard piece by piece. It was just so, so offensive. It was so offensive. It, it, was, it was like a verbal version of the picture of all of the white people standing there with the black bodies hanging from the tree with them smiling. Yep. That's right. what that was like. That was, that's, so, that's what that was like. Um, we are telling the world that slavery and involuntary servitude of crimes against humanity, it should not exist in any nation for any reason. There is no justification for it. And our own government agrees with us by federal, uh, the Federal Labor Law 18 U.S. Code 1589. It, they go so far as... To uh, This comes directly from the Department of Labor. It's at their website, the DOL.gov, and they say they are shining a light on the exploitation in the solar supply chain. And this is on their website right now. It says solar power is critical to achieving a green future, but there is extensive evidence of labor abuse across much of the solar supply chain, nearly half of the world's polysilicon, a key material used to produce solar panels, comes from the Jang Uyghur Autonomous Region, uh, XUAR, or Xinjiang, a region of China where members of ethnic and re- religious minority groups are forced by the government to work against their will. How does forced okay. labor find its way into the solar panel. And then if you scroll down just a little bit, you'll see that they have in big, bold letters on the Department of Labor's website, forced labor is defined as all work 
or service, which is exacted from any person under the menace of any penalty for which the said person has not offered themselves voluntarily. And they take that straight out of the ILO Forced Labor Convention of 1930, uh, number 29. But peep game. Sam turned me on to this because I asked him about a certain company that I assumed or kind of figured would use in prison slave labor to make what? Solar panels. And this comes from Prison Legal News, where they said, prisoners at the Federal Correction Institution in Sheridan, Oregon, are making solar panels at a Unicor factory for 93 cents an hour under a tax break incentivized contract that claims to favor local manufacturing for a large photovoltaic system installed at two Oregon University campuses. The project was launched by Solar City, one of the most well-known solar energy installation companies in the country, founded by clean tech businessman magnate and poster child for green capitalism, Elon Musk. So while they're saying this is a mm-hmm. crime that the Chinese people are doing by making these solar panels and forced labor, we're doing it right here, right now with Elon Musk. Yusuf and it's a $27 million project. Yes. 100%. All across the nation. Yeah, all across the nation. Yeah, and that's just one company. There are other companies that are doing it as well. So it's it's one of the largest uh, revenue generators in the prison system because there's uh, Crossroads Solar in Indiana. There's uh, Suniva, which is in Georgia and Michigan. You just have so many companies. And Elon Musk, Elon Musk is uh, – his his corp his 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 contract is worth about twenty seven million dollars. <laughs> and Suniva was in California for a second too. They 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 contracted with the California Department of Correction for a moment. Yes. So the blatant hypocrisy is there. They're saying that this is a crime and we're committing it and admitting to it in an advertisement. Uh, and you know. As we fight against the slavery and involuntary servitude, we're finding that we're no longer under the radar. We we won, we got eight states done, but they know who we are now. And the uh, yes. those that oppose us have developed their own counter arguments to what we're saying. Well, we can't end slavery and involuntary servitude because we don't know what kind of unintended consequences will arise from it. This is what we heard in North Carolina. This is what we heard here in California. This is what we hear in Ohio. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. Ohio even went further. I want to play for you guys and our yeah, listening audience. To. I want to play for you their counter-argument in Ohio, just said a few days ago, by State Representative Brian Stewart in, repl- in a setting where they were trying to change the state constitution so that in order to add an amendment, you have to get 60% rather than 50 plus one. So they're trying to make the bar higher so that we cannot end slavery 
in Ohio. And this is what he had to say. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Where our guest today is Sam Brown, and we've got John Knipple in the house. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. The next Abolition. witness, one question Abolition. each, please. Stuart, you're up. That, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I, I just I asked this because I saw you nodding along kind of with the, the, the discussion about Ohio's Constitution as it relates to slavery. There was a lot of discussion yesterday. I got a lot of text messages from people confused about you know, why we were talking about so much about slavery yesterday. I, and there was, a, there was a concern on the other side that we would sort of counteract uh, what they perceived to be disinformation yesterday. And so I, I think it's important to kind of make sure we're not confusing the public here. Uh, you know, the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime, okay, shall exist, right? That's where that began. That wasn't an endorsement of slavery. That was a legal acknowledgement that when we take away the liberty of a child murderer and tell them that, well, you're going to wake up every day for 20 years and make license plates in a, in a state penitentiary, from a legal standpoint, someone might say that that looks kind of like slavery. It's not an endorsement of slavery as it existed prior to the Civil War. Ohio's Constitution has similar language. There shall be no slavery in this state nor involuntary servitude, unless for the punishment of a crime. Again, that's, that predates the Civil War by 15 years. It's not an endorsement of slavery. That's a legal acknowledgment, again, that when we put away a multi-mass murderer and tell him he's going to you know, uh, you know, pick carrots and orient for, for the rest of his life, that might legally look something like slavery. So it was then brought up that, well, Oregon did something about this. You know, the lunatics in Portland took slavery out of the state constitution, and they did so because they wanted to make sure that you could no longer require people to undergo court-ordered, court-ordered counseling, court-ordered drug treatment, court-ordered community service, and arguably, how do you even lock somebody up if you're a child murderer in Oregon, and how, and you know, do the child murderers in Oregon now get to say, well, sorry, warden, I don't want to wake up and, you know, make license plates today because that's slavery. Are you really saying the legal women voters would want to change Ohio's constitution to essentially pave the way for us to not have any court-ordered, you know, community service or court-ordered, you know, making license plates in the in the state penitentiary, because that's what that really involves. Abolition. 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 Wow. So you just heard Ohio State Rep. Brian Stewart with the new GOP pro-slavery talking points. And yes, he really said all of that. And he said it with a straight face. Said it with a straight face that, one, he's pitching the argument that everyone in prison is in there for child murder, and then he continued on to double down to say multiple mass murders. And... We can't end slavery like those lunatics up in Portland did because we can't make them do a program. But we know in reality it's they don't want to do this because they can't force people to work and make money off of them. So, Sam, <laughs> I know you have something to say about this. You have a lot to say about what you just heard, brother. 
man, this guy, this guy is hilarious. Uh, the, the, the high contact communication is really not even high contact. This is just blatant white supremacist rhetoric. And it ties all the way back to, you know, that whole theory of you do the time, you do the crime. You know what I'm saying? Or you do the crime, you do the time. You got to pay your debt to society. And for those who don't know, that in and of itself is rooted in white supremacy. And the reason why that is is because when people were free, when black people were, were freely liberated from being, you know, shadow slaves or, or being enslaved, they were trying to trick them or get them back on those plantations so they could create a cheap labor force. So they created the black code. And when they created the black code, as we all know, something as simple as not having a job was caused to get you arrested and then charged with a fine that, of course, you could not pay, and then you had to work off your debt to society. So when we fast forward all the way to today and they talk about you need to pay your debt to society, that in and of itself is a saying that speaks and rooted in white supremacy and racism. And it's so funny to hear this, this gentleman, this clown, say that this is a legal precedent that precedes the Civil War about 15 years. So just, just off the cuff, using his logic, Let's look at a, a, a horse and a, and, a, and a carriage, right? The horse and the carriage preceded the, the Civil War also, too. And that was, that was the, one of the main modes of transportation. So here we are today, and we're not using a horse and carriage for transportation, but we still travel, though. So if that law existed because they needed something to deal with people who committed crimes 15 years prior to the Civil War, we still need laws to deal with them, but we don't need that law. We don't need that mode of transportation when it comes to dealing with people who are accused of being criminals. Slavery is never the answer. That's not the way you balance the books. That's not the way you deal with somebody who's incarcerated. A person incarcerated, even if they are made, then it's the part about making the license plate. Even if a person is making license plates, you want them to be able to make those license plates and then come home with an opportunity to get a meaningful job or a job and have a meaningful opportunity at, at providing for themselves. Not in there working, cut, making license plates and potentially cutting their fingers off, and then you're just kicking them to the side, you know what I mean, or sending them back out with nowhere to get a job from. Then, on top of that, what you're also saying, let's say it was somebody that murdered a child. Let's say somebody did kill a child, because that does happen, right? Does that make that mm-hmm. person incorrigible? That's one. Does that make them incorrigible, right? Two. Even if they did do something like that, you don't want them to go to prison to learn how to make license plates. You want them to go to prison to understand what led them to think that it was all right to commit the heinous acts that they did. And as long as prison is dictated and ran by slavery, then forced labor takes precedence over rehabilitation. So even if a child murderer was in prison, if you're more concerned about making them do license plates and helping them understand the traumas that caused them to adopt that behavior, then we are, we're doing the whole public, the whole public a disservice. Oh my god, don't get me started on that clown, y'all. Man, it was so full of logical fallacies and outright denial and lies. Let's just for a moment take some things into consideration that are facts, okay? He's Mm -hmm. implying, as Yusuf said, that everybody in this prison is a child murderer. You know, they always go to the far extreme, right? So, explosive words, right? Right now, there's 134 people on death row in Ohio. So child murderers, we normally get the death penalty, right? There's 134 people total on death row. And I would surmise that a small percentage of those are child murderers. We're talking about two or three dozen people that you're referencing in order to uh, punish 
and force people to work in a state that has 28 prisons, 108 jails, a $2 billion a year budget with 201,000 people on probation or parole, 22,000 parolees, 20,000 in jail, and 46,000 in prisons. I ought to let 300,000 people, you're talking about dictating involuntary servitude, which is illegal, because of a few child murderers, uh, two or three dozen at the most in these prisons. So this is your example, right? It, it makes no damn sense at all. Max, and it's I want to jump in here, Max. Yes. I want to jump in here and say something. So they, this is what they use. So the American Legislative Exchange Council, Alex, the mm-hmm. right-wing conservative think tank group that's, you know, responsible for producing model legislation that they didn't disseminate throughout the nation, right? Here in California... They had the three strikes law that was passed when the tragedy happened with Polly Class. She was a young Caucasian, you know, uh, lady, a girl. A tragedy took place in her family um, where this guy got out of prison, a white guy, and, and you know, of course, this little girl, like, really did some terrible stuff. So they hijacked her tragedy. We in California were thinking that this was something that people in California came up with because this guy had, you know, a, a prior prison felonies and he had got out. But come to find out, this was legislation that was put forth by some people that had nothing to do with California. They saw this, this tragedy take place with this white family, a rich, affluent white family, and they seized the opportunity to pass this law, which would then fill the prison beds, the three strikes law. And the communities that it decimated, there was a white guy that got out of prison who committed the crime against a white family. They passed three strikes law. It decimates Hispanics and blacks and Asians, and the whites are touched by it the least the least, right? And it's had like over a 20-year run, giving people life sentences. And the reason why I brought that up is because they hijacked that tragedy and started using these, these explosive terms on child murderer and child rapists and killer and all that stuff. And right now, him using those terms has no place in this discussion, period. That's him trying to throw these explosive right. terms right. and words to take people's attention off what it is that we're really even talking about. And the fact of the matter is whether it's somebody that committed a, a, a crime against an elderly person, a child, or that's in there for possession of marijuana, whatever the case is, they're going to make them do the same job. They're going to all be that's slaves. Right. That's right. That's what he's not talking about. You understand what I'm saying? All, everybody's going to get treated the same way, period. So it doesn't have to be a quote-unquote child murderer. Anybody that gets incarcerated, you could be innocent. You could be, you know, wrongfully convicted. Any, anybody. And they're going to take you, once they put you through that due process modulator, they're going to turn you into a modern-day slave, period. And so that stuff that he's saying, it's just like Max said, it's just so easily debunked and, and, and outrageous. Outrageous. I had the nerve to call the people in Oregon lunatics for ending slavery in their constitution. Wow. Uh, straight up, called them those lunatics in Portland uh, who abolished slavery. It's like we're in the 1800s again. And, you know, both of those states predated the 13th Amendment. Both Oregon and Ohio created an exception clause to allow the use of slavery and involuntary servitude as a punishment for crime. They set the stage 
for what we know as the 13th Amendment. And this exception clause, as you know from listening to this show, traces all the way back to 1777 in Vermont, who was the first one to introduce it. It was perfected Mm -hmm. along the way because it went to the Northwest Ordinance. Ohio adopted it in 06. Uh, Oregon adopted it in 43. And then we ran into the Corwin Amendment in 61. And I'm going to talk some a little bit about the Corwin Amendment. Um, Let me pull up my data right here. And the Corwin Amendment, for those that don't know, was the original 13th Amendment. This was what Lincoln proposed they do. He actually sent a letter of support for the Corwin Amendment to Florida and several other southern states. uh, And this was what he thought would be the best route. Uh, The discovery, and I'm going to read this straight from the LIB and IU education site uh, about Abraham Lincoln and the Corwin Amendment, it says, the discovery of a letter from newly inaugurated President Abraham Lincoln to the governor of Florida has generated renewed interest in Lincoln's view toward slavery. The letter found at the Lehigh County Historical Society in Allentown, Pennsylvania, is a form letter from Lincoln to Governor Madison S. Perry, transmitting an authenticated copy of a joint resolution to amend the Constitution of the United States. And this came out March 16, 1861. Remember, the Emancipation Proclamation was, uh, I believe it was uh, 1862. January 1st, 1863. Right, right. No, but he first uh, announced it in September of 1862. Right. So this is Mm -hmm. just a year apart. That this happened on March 16, 1861, Lincoln sent the same letter to all of the governors of the states, including states that had already seceded from the Union and formed their own Confederate government. And what was this amendment? It says, and listen closely, no amendment shall be made to the Constitution, which will authorize or give to Congress the power to abolish or interfere with any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said states. In other words, the amendment would forever guarantee the right of Southern people to own slaves. That was the first one that came out from Lincoln's own hands. And then we saw what happened with the compromise. Uh, The compromise was what we now have is the 13th Amendment. They looked back at what Oregon had done, what Alabama had done, what Ohio had done, and said, you know, this thing of turning black people into uh, criminals and then forcing them to work in prisons where we can work them to death and don't have to worry about any kind of human rights or how we take care of them or whatever, that's the way to go. It puts the state in control of slavery rather than the individual. And that is how we came to where we are right now. Uh, Sam? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just always shocked by your research. <laughs> Man. Um, you know, you see something similar with the Black Codes and the, the, the 13th Amendment of the United States because they were both introduced on the same year as well, you know. The, the, the 13th Amendment was introduced earlier in the year, and then the Black Codes were introduced, I believe, in uh, Carolina and uh, what was the other spot? Carolina, was it Mississippi? Mississippi, Maybe? Carolina, uh, yes. Uh, North Carolina, Georgia had their own 
uh, Tennessee right. Bears. Yes. And they and they were all they were introduced, like you said, like you just you just so I mean, you, you, when we provide such a chronological order, like a breakdown, it's really difficult for a person to say that their bias is not just simply that, you know. When we when we provide you with the facts and all of the evidence and show you how this is connected and this chain was never broken, I mean from from the doctrine that you just provided, demonstrating how it was the predecessors for the um for the Thirteenth Amendment, and then demonstrating mm-hmm. how then when the Thirteenth Amendment showed up, those other states that you just mentioned, they all of a sudden came with the the loophole to the Thirteenth Amendment, which was the Black Codes, and now we understand why they were able to get their Black Codes ratified before the Thirteenth Amendment of the United States was ratified, even though it was introduced first, because they already knew what it was going to be, and they were all getting their loopholes in place. Exactly. And it's like little things like that that people got to pay attention to. You know, Max, you brought up a, uh, you touched on something. So, the Thirteenth Amendment contains the first time the word slavery is mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. Right. Instead of the persons held to labor. So it was always different allocations, like Article One, Section 2, Clause 3 of the Constitution stated that congressional representation will be based on the whole number of free persons and the three-fifths of all other persons. So we know what they mean when they say three-fifths of all other persons. Or if they say, uh, when they were talking about uh, outlawing the slave trade, they referred to it as the importation of persons. Or when they were dealing with the fugitive slaves, they referred to them as persons held to service or labor. So the first time we hear the, the word slavery is in the 13th Amendment. Right. And the Corwin Amendment, which was only a year before the emancipation, as I said, when they finally decided how they want to do this thing in order to keep us as slaves into the future and do it legally, uh, that was introduced by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, John C. Breckinridge. It was signed by Uh the Vice President of the United States, uh, James Buchanan, and uh, it was almost made it all the way through the Senate. It made it through the House. That would have been the 13th Amendment had not the South refused it. The South actually refused it. It was going to enshrine slavery permanently so nobody could ever abolish right. it. Right. No uh, amendment. They still refused Right. No amendment. No amendment. Exactly. Hey, listen, we got a hand up, so I want to take a call. After that, we're going to take another uh, a music break, and then we'll get back into this conversation. So let's go ahead and take our first caller. Uh, 0166, you're on Abolition Today with us. Hi, it's Karen. Hey, Karen. Hi, Karen. Oh, my gosh, this is a brilliant show. Hi, I'm Yusuf. I'm so glad that you're okay. Um, my prayers were at you, even though I'm a child of Christ. I, You know, Christ and Allah talk to each other, so I'm glad that you're okay. Thank you. And healthy. I just wanted to say I had a proud moment where I was so glad that Abolition Today got me out of my ignorance of the 13th Amendment. um, Vermont Law School had an um, exhibit regarding the 25 Lifers book that came out for people who are spending life in prison, and there was a book that was published. And, you know, they were doing all this work and talking about what they're doing for prisoners, but none of them ever mentioned the 13th Amendment. And I was like, well, I'm a student at Abolition Today University, so I have to figure out where's your stance on the 13th Amendment. And, you know, I asked the woman, I said, don't you want to abolish the 13th Amendment? I mean, it's great what they're doing to support those that are 
serving life, and although they're serving life, they are they can be changed. Uh, she says she's never had anyone propose a the question of the 13th Amendment to her, and she was completely shocked about the idea. And this is a woman who's been spending years serving prisoners. And I was just like, oh, my God, Max and you think would be so <laughs> just, just And I just record. wanted to say thank you. And, and even to that senator, you know, this is the time for the bold. You know, yes, the wicked is out here, but you know what? It seems like our supreme judge is making a way for us in the wilderness. He's making rivers in the desert for us, sustaining us. I mean, Yusuf is well and healthy. Max is Max. And hi, Sam. I'm, look at you, man. You're rocking and rolling. So I just wanted to say, you know, for the students that are in the Abolition Today University, you know, this is our time to be bold, go into our communities, even if, from, even if we've already abolished slavery in your state, you know, go to the next state or, or talk to people mm -hmm. who are in different states or just talk to mm -hmm. your governors, mm -hmm. write them letters, write, annoy your senators. I say annoying senators and governors and mayors, all of them, you know, for whatever you need and petition for those bigger than us. This is bigger than us, and I just wanted to say that. And also, let's talk about the future quickly. Um, I love that you're talking about involuntary servitude. You know, the Department of Correction knows that their throne, is, their kingdom is crumbling. Um, with AT&T, I mean, that company is crumbling. I think there's a million-dollar settlement. If you haven't got your money, go get it now. Check it out with AT&T. But they're crumbling. And I think it's very important for us to know that, the, you know, the future is where we're going. And we're going to see free people, and we're going to see people who maybe make mistakes but are going to come back as better citizens with their minds renewed. And, by the way, the Department of Corrections is losing its throne to the Department of Mental Health, which loves to involuntarily admit people by court order through the signature of a judge. So that's happening in the future, but we're going to work on that as well. But right now, the 13th Amendment. So this is just for all my fellow students of abolition today, my classmates. Please, this is the time to be brave. <laughs> and thank you to our professors, our deans, our leaders, Max Yusuf, and all that you bring to educate us. That's all I had to say, guys. You know I love y'all. All right. Thank, Thank you very you much, much Corinne. Corinne. Yeah. Um, I would like to clarify, though, we don't want to abolish the 13th Amendment. That's yeah, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> what we need to do is to repeal and replace it with the 28th Amendment, which is the Abolition Amendment. Um, that's the plan. Because the uh, U.S. Constitution is a alleged living document, and nothing can be taken from it. Instead, you do what we did during Prohibition. When the 18th Amendment uh, and Prohibition was in place, we brought in the 21st Amendment, which repealed it and replaced it. And that's what we need to do with the 13th Amendment. But we do want to abolish slavery. All right. With that uh, said, I want to go ahead and play this music break for us so we can take a moment, hear a little bit more, enjoy the music, and come back and continue to question the conversation. Uh, what you're about to hear is a clip from uh, a sister by the name of Britt from uh, the Except For Me series that was developed by Worth Rises. Worth Rises is our partner who is working on the Federal Amendment. And that's going to be followed by the artist Jesse Jett with the song Amendment 13, Homo Detritus. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Our guest today is Sam Nathaniel Brown. And in the house we have John We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. America would have to make a different choice to choose to care about people's humanity versus profit. 
My name is Brittany White. I go by Britt. Before I went to prison, I was a regular 23-year-old living in Atlanta, going to church, making money every day to figure out how to party and just enjoy my youth in the city. I was incarcerated in the state of Alabama for five years. When I was incarcerated and I was community status working at Burger King, the state of Alabama would take 60% of my check because I was the property of the state of Alabama. Burger King was aware that we were incarcerated and they knew much of that money would never reach us. And I went without for that entire time I was locked up. But my labor was something that was constant. So many people have their hand in the cookie jar and continue to profit off of my body, my labor, the body of women I left behind in their labor Coming home, I just had such a deep sense of urgency to do something and to tell people about what I had experienced. And I'm an organizer to my very bones and it makes me feel amazing because this is what I'm gonna be doing for the rest of my life. People I love are denied parole and kept in prison because their physical beings equal capital for so many wealthy people in America. It would mean everything to me to end the exception that is currently in our 13th Amendment because the consequences could mean that so many people I love could possibly come home. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery except for me. Let's pass the abolition amendment and end the exception. And you don't stop. Just push through and you don't stop. Broken and bruised, you don't stop. Coughing up fluid, you don't stop. All right, fresh from the mines that brought you King Midas. Sign of the times, call me homo detritus. Karma's a beast and its fleas make a plague look childish. Are we home of the brave or the best or the brightest? None of the above, and my answer's as final as one wrong look at one of Brooklyn's finest. Now Barack was a real class act, spent a lot to the Hague so stylish. Where he could perch on a warlord's throne, made a little-known Middle East drone violence. Buddy, they were logging mileage while you and your smartphone were both on silent. Too busy hailing Barack as a well-spoken token that prejudice was dead and American woken up when all along our bigotry was thriving. In a rising red vitriolic tide so thick that it is binding like a contract of slavery they gave us in writing. Loophole amendments that lay all their minds and then go into hiding so they can legislate slaves to a 20 cent wage if they're on the inside. The road isn't long, it is wide and there's not much winding. They just lead you to a lifetime of small crime Bring you back and put you in a line Doing sweatshop labor for a couple fucking dimes And you can spend your whole life here Being beaten by a staff of steroid Jimmer at white nationals Do it all for Nike, buddy Do it for the capital Do it for the guards so they'll treat you like an animal Do it when you're sick or you're sore Cause you have to Do it so the prison shareholders Can roll in their dough and remodel their bathrooms with walk-in showers that might be a little bit bigger than the cell where you spend 20 hours of your 24, maybe more. They don't count it anymore. They just need you well enough to move a product out the door. They just got a marble countertop and untiled floor. 
cheated fucking seats on a bidet that you helped them afford. But they won't lift a finger if your warden goes overboard. Makes your common area unspoken COVID ward. Left you in or mingle like you hadn't really done before. Now there's a lot of pits dug up in the yard, all numbered, and he still won't tell you what the number's for. But it's gotta be a warning. It's probably the kind that you might need thunder for. When the realization strikes, they've been hooping you tight and restricting your time outside. It won't take a genius to link it to all of the coughing that's keeping you up every night. So if you can't abide slaves, I'll state the case plain. A prisoner shares the same rights. And your tax dollars are lining the pockets of those who ensure that the luxuries of medicine and showers are consistently denied. And you can spend eight years if you're black because you burned up a trash can, but you won't see any time if you rape when you're young and you're white. And in five years' time, that white racist guy gets a job as a guard where he finds a new prey to dehumanize. And it's ingrained as a part of our system of justice so deeply that it's not scrutinized. And if we're talking capital punishment, all of these assholes with bludgeons who call themselves justice could probably be euthanized. Rather than giving them 70 humans to supervise, torture, and brutalize. Sensitivity training can't teach you the value of human life. It's a message that's basic. Our nature has shaped it and culture is born out of breaking it down and then seeing it crucified. I feel like I'm watching every day with exponentially more lucid eyes. Till I'm drooling out my cheek and down my side and my eyes with the dullest shade of overdose white. When just a dose of reality hits like an overdose might. Gross mentality that keeps this country going Makes you wonder why we're keeping it alive And we don't stop Just push through and you don't stop Coughing up fluid, you don't stop Guards gang rape you and you don't stop They take your commissary, you don't stop Your mother's being buried, you don't stop When nothing is forgiven, you don't stop When life's not living, you don't stop you just push through and you don't stop Cough it up slow and you don't stop Got gang rape you and you don't stop Broken act rules you don't stop They take your commentary and don't stop Your mother's being buried you don't stop When nothing is forgiven you don't stop When life's not living you don't stop You just push through and you don't stop Cough it up slow and you don't stop Abolition Today Today you just heard except for me and that was Britt part of the worth rises campaign for the amendment act 28th amendment act of the federal constitution and that was followed by what I would say is if involuntary servitude was a song you just heard it that was Jesse Jett amendment 13 homo detritus and Everything that he said in that song, he was just breaking it down of how the person, no matter what's going on with you when you're in prison, you are not going to stop working. There's nothing that's going to stop. Just like we heard in the ad earlier in the show. And then the people that are benefiting from it. Yeah, the people that are benefiting from it, they're building up their home. They live in a life of luxury. And the beat goes on. So, man, like. What he said yeah. in the song about I your mother that. just died and you're you know, getting buried and you don't stop. That's true. They don't give you no time because yeah. your mother died. Uh, it's right. just horrible. 
no break. Talk. That's how the, that's right. that's ahead, how the plantation is. That's how the plantation is. You know, just think about the plantation that we all, that the horrors that we heard about, you know, that we read about. It, it mm-hmm. didn't give any break or slack or love. They worked you to death. And it's the same in the prison mm-hmm. system. I remember when I first went to Calipatria in, like, 1999, and it was this, this elderly guy, a man named Whiskey. And I used to see him all the time, and um, he used to be pushing his broom, and he would just fall on the ground because Whiskey had been so locked up for so long, and he was, his, 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 and the officers would just look at him like they was waiting for him to die. And I, one specific time, I, I hollered at the officers like, "Push your alarm! You see this man laying on the ground? Push the button!" You know, and but they was like they was just waiting on this guy to die, and that was that's the reality. They don't care. They will work you to death. They will give you a frivolous 115. They will roll you up off the yard, and they will put somebody up in your position, and it will keep moving. They will transfer you to another plantation. They will separate you from everybody you love, and it, 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 the machine will keep moving the messed up American way. Damn. Wow. All right. Uh, we got another hand up. <clears throat> Go ahead and bring that in. Um, I believe this is Sean, darling out of Maine. Sean, you're on Abolition Today with Max, Yusuf, and Sam. Hey guys, it is Sean. Um, I have a, a question because you're talking about the um, federal campaign for a second. Um, so I've done the um, and the exception and contacted my um, federal representatives, and basically the response we're getting is if this becomes a important issue, you know, we'll get back to you. You know, like this comes to a vote. I mean, sorry, I didn't say when it comes to a vote. So how do I find out if um, myself? How do I find out, or anybody listening in their states can they find out? if their representatives are supporting the abolitionist amendment and um if not what can we do to put more pressure on the federal on the federal level about people who aren't signed on yet um it's two questions right one is how do we put more pressure on the federal and the other is how do you find out if your state's involved how do you find out because i've i obviously i know that my um, representatives know but basically the responses I've gotten is, you know, we'll, we've got to put this off until this comes to a vote. You know, how do we put more pressure on them and how do we find out if they even support, <laughs> you know, um, the amendment okay. to start with? Uh, the answer to the first question about the states themselves, if you, you can go to abolishslavery.us and you will click resources. And if you scroll down, you'll see a national map with a mouse over. Uh, and that gives you each state's exception clause and we are currently working on having a direct link to the websites of the states that have active campaigns. So all you have to do is mm-hmm. click it right there. So that's the first one. Uh, the second one, as far as putting the pressure on from the federal level, is you can go to ndexception.com, and they have a text prompt that you can type in. What is the number again, Yusuf? You, you, I'm pretty sure you know about heart. Sure. So, yeah, you have to text end the exception that's all one word to 52886 and you should get a response and if if you've done the response and your rep or your congressional reps are in support of it you'll get an email back stating that they're in support of it uh i haven't yeah. heard of anyone doing it and they didn't we- get a response back yeah, no, I've, I've I've done that. I've gotten a response. So the response has been, um, we'll look into this if it comes to if the amendment itself comes to a vote. Not we support it, we don't support uh, it. So that it's, sounds like that they're not in support of it, 
or that they haven't pledged their support <laughs> to it yet. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, songs like that, but I was, I was trying to make sure, and, you know, I feel like I should be doing more to, to encourage them to support this, but I just don't know. Um, I guess they contact uh, their offices directly, uh, I guess. I don't know what else to do. You know, we all feel like this needs to end right now. So I understand your angst. Uh, I wanted mm-hmm. to end yesterday. Uh, unfortunately, I've been going at this nearly for two decades, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, right. so it's not as simple as that. It can get frustrating, but we have tools available for you that I pointed out that you can use. Uh, if that's not enough for you, uh, you could always maybe, you know, think of something, <laughs> you know, like there's a okay. lot of information on our website, but, you know, you could call your representative and just rant to his ass. You could write him a letter. Uh, you could uh, That's true. organize people to help support the Abolish Slavery National Network. Uh, if mm-hmm. you're not in a state that's organizing, or can help to support the national network. Uh, you could share information. We have dozens and dozens of educational videos right there in the resource section. You can share that information and get it out there so that people can understand. You can host uh, film watching events where you can mm-hmm. get a community center and watch one of the films that we recommend people view, which is uh, Slavery by Another Name, uh, 13th, Ava DuVernay, and Do Not Resist. Those are three films that people should see. You can also get a book club started about these issues. So there's a lot of things that you can do. We need you to just think and be creative uh, and go to abolishslavery.us and take advantage of the tools that are there. Definitely think outside the box. And I think that's a great question, asking how you can get involved and what more you can do. Thank you for um, bringing that up and asking. And in anyone sure. who wants to, yes, sir, anyone who wants to know what more, you know, you can do to help in California or just keep a, be abreast of what's happening in California, you can log on to endslaveryincalifornia.org. That's end, E-N-D, slaveryincalifornia.org or In Slavery in California Act Coalition on Instagram. Um, and you'll be able to find out more information, stay abreast of what's going on. And we, like Max was saying, we need all the help that we can get. There's no one-size-fits-all. There's no one way to do this. We've Something that uh, Max often says to us is we've never lived in a country without slavery. We don't know what that looks like, ever. Right. And so right. what that looks like with getting it done, there's no set way of getting it done. We have to really figure this out as we go along. And if your heart tells you, you know, maybe I should make cards and gift cards with the 13th Amendment on them today and send them out or something to raise awareness. If it tells you maybe you need to do a webinar or, you know, whatever the case may be, go speak at a school. Every little bit counts because the person don't sleep. But we got to push back from every angle. So thank you for calling and asking how people could get involved. Indeed, Sam. There's so many ways. Go ahead, Yusuf. I was going to say, we have one more caller with their hand up. Uh, We'll bring them in briefly. Uh, 9917, you're on Abolition Today. Welcome to the show. Peace, peace, fam. Peace, brother Brother Tag. Yes, yes. uh, Really, really feeling the discussion as always. I, I haven't been able to be on for the entirety, but what I'm, what I'm hearing, I'm feeling a great deal. And I just wanted to give a quick report about a brother who is inside right now in Indiana uh, for the Abolition Today uh, Abolitionist Community 
to uh, support, if at all possible, he, he's going through it right now on on the health uh, on the health end, um, particularly around his um, diabetes. Uh, apparently, this brother, whose uh, whose government is De Adrian Boykin, and uh, I'll give the DIN number as well. But um, a comrade of ours uh, with a loved one who's inside with with De Adrian uh, in Indiana. Uh, has reported that basically these overseers are refusing him his insulin, you know, and he's diabetic. He's been inside his entire, you know, uh, legal adult life since he's 18. He's uh, now 28. And uh, basically it, it appears that they are refusing his insulin because he does not want to go into restraints and be shackled. Um, just to receive, you know, his his insulin that he needs to live, and so uh, this comrade who who's inside with him is 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 very concerned for his safety and and just wanted us to to ring the alarm uh, behind that. So if if heads are able to, um, please call uh, the facility. Um, so I got a couple of numbers that that I can leave, including the. Uh, main office at IDOC, which is the uh, Department of Corrections, so-called, out in Indiana, um, as well as the the number for the facility there. So, if um, if I could take a quick few seconds to drop that information, it would be greatly appreciated. Go ahead. Sure. All right. So the main office at IDOC is the number is three one seven two three three six nine eight four. And then there's the superintendent's office. Uh, their name is William Wilson, and that number is 574-270-0195. And, uh, again, the brother's uh, government is De Adrian Boykin, and um, his number is listed at 201 De Adrian Boykins and, and can you he, spell his he, first name, please? Absolutely, absolutely. De Adrian is spelled D apostrophe uh, apostrophe A D R I A N. De Adrian Boykins is spelled B O Y K I N S. De Adrian Boykins. Okay, and can you give me the superintendent's number one more time? Absolutely. And his That's name Wilson. again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's William, William Wilson. Wilson. William Wilson is the superintendent mm-hmm. at IDOC. And that phone number is 574-270-0195. Again, that's William Wilson. Okay. And do you know which facility he's in? I do. I do. So he is at Pendleton. And I can leave. Oh, yeah, that's uh, a very that, infamous. Yeah, that's very infamous there. Exactly. Yeah, I'm familiar with Pendleton. No doubt, no doubt. And and uh, they they just put out a, a fire documentary um, about how how heinous that they've been out in Pendleton uh, for for the longest. You know, um, just exposing some of that behind some of the political prisoners who are still inside there. If if anyone. Um, seeks to, to check that out. I think it's called um, Those Who Stood Up. It's something to that effect. Uh, but uh, a fire documentary, very, very important um, history and, and present-day uh, reality 
real quick, the, the Pendleton number uh, I'll give right now, uh, Pendleton Correctional Facility, the number is 765-778-2107. And, and as, you were, as you were pointing toward, Brother Youssef, yeah, in Pendleton, they have a long history of uh, just, just brutal and blatant racism and Klan activity and all kinds of um, inside organizations that are Klan affiliated and otherwise white supremacists. And that's been for the longest. So this brother, as a Muslim, you know, and and some of the other comrades who are in there, uh, who are Muslim or who are racialized in, in in any kind of way, you know, they're 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 getting the absolute brunt of it. Thank you, Tag, for the information. Uh, much appreciated, um, and the support is always for those individuals. We've only got about ten minutes left. Um, and I do want to share a couple pieces of other news and give our guest tonight an opportunity to speak to our audience with some uh, parting words before our final segments. Uh, two of the pieces of news that I do want to share, I want people to know about. The first one out of Atlanta, Georgia, where uh, LaShawn Thompson died in the Atlanta jail, in a pretrial jail. He had not been charged. He had not been convicted of any crime. But he died from bed bug bites. Insects ate him to death uh, in the most horrid conditions you can imagine. You should see the videos and images of where they put this man. Um, And he died. It's basically murder by the state Mm -hmm. in a pretrial detention facility. So please check out that story. Uh, The other one was out of McCurtain County, Oklahoma, where a recording caught the county sheriff and the mm-hmm. commissioner. Uh, it was the county sheriff, Kevin Clardy, the District 2 Commissioner Mark Jennings, and District 3 Commissioner Robert Beck, and the sheriff's investigator, Alicia Manning, all discussing the potential murder of a reporter and talking about how, you know, the good old days, they used to be able to hang black people and talking about lynching black people. These are sheriffs and commissioners out of Oklahoma talking out loud together about how they wish it was 20 years ago uh, so they could go hang some Negroes and how black people have more rights than white people have now. It's uh, another indicator of what we're dealing with with slave catchers. Slave catchers is what they are, uh, who have these biases and are hunting and murdering us in the streets. And sometimes when they capture you, they put you in a box where you die of bed bug bites. These are horrible crimes against humanity done by people who should be inside those cells that they love so much. All right. With that being uh, mentioned, I want to go ahead and get to Sam. Sam, uh, you want to give us... Uh, do you want to speak to our audience about anything in particular? Uh, maybe remind them how they can help you in California and maybe some words of advice or, uh, you know, inspiration that you might want to leave us with. Thank you very much, Max. And as always, thank you too, Brother Yusuf. So, yeah, everybody, my name is uh, Sam, Sam Nathaniel Brown. You can find me on Instagram at sam.nathaniel.brown. Again, um, in slavery in California, 
Coalition on Instagram. And so what I want to leave the people with is just summarizing some of what we talked about today and really putting it in perspective for everybody. A little while ago, we heard the lady um, talking about her experience working for Burger King while she was incarcerated. Now, how many people mm-hmm. drive past Burger King every day and not knowing that they're employing people who are incarcerated, right? Right. That's one. But then on top of that, I want everybody to think about this. Right now, the cost of one top ramen noodle in the California prison system is 45 cents, right? A person can work mm-hmm. a job. Some people are forced to work for nothing. Most of the jobs, or many of the jobs, start out at like 8 cents. So a person can work an 8 cent job 40 hours a week. We're talking about 8 hours a day. You can work 8 hours, and then after restitution, which is 55%, after an 8 hour day, you can't even afford one top ramen noodle. You would have to work 16 hours to get a noodle. 16 hours to get one top ramen noodle. You still can't even afford two. That's mm. just to put it in perspective. Like 16 mm. hours to get one top ramen noodle. And then so when we well, then when we talk about that, about the wages and the prices of the amount of money that people in prison are making, then we have to make clear to the people that that's not really what our discussion is about. Our discussion is not about wages. And we want to make that clear. I think we Did might we have lost it? you there, Sam. Yeah. But he the touches last, on that point. point. You're back. And as oh, he's said, back. I and want to make was, that clear. Yeah, I want to make it clear. And as I was sitting here thinking, for the first time, it really, you know, it became clear to me how to explain it, that there's the loophole, and then there's how the loophole works. And they keep trying to lure everybody into this discussion about how the loophole works. Oh, well, this is how much they get paid. Oh, well, this is what it constitutes involuntary servitude. Oh, this is what constitutes housekeeping. That's how the loophole works. We don't want to have a discussion about how the loophole works. We want to have a discussion about closing the loophole. Period. And so those are two different discussions, and that's what we want to highlight. When we're talking about ending involuntary servitude and slavery, we're talking about closing the loophole. It's talking about this and constitutes and work and all this stuff. They're talking about you you may be in a bad area, Sam. We're losing a lot of you. Yeah, and we may have may lost and still be driving and in, in, in a bad territory. Uh, I want to say uh, show my appreciation to Sam as always for being here and to be a part of the program. Are you y'all back? Can hear me? Yeah, we hear yeah, you. Yeah, y'all couldn't hear nothing I said. Only the last I'm 20 sorry. seconds or so. Okay, I was just saying that um, we just want to make clear that people understand. Yeah, nope, we lost, lost you again, again. Sam. <laughs> it's okay, brother. I think we got the, the message, and I'll try to follow we up got on the it. Gist, Me too. Yeah. Uh, okay. I want to say thank you. Am I going again? Dang. You're back once again. Let's give it one more try. Go ahead. <laughs> and we lost him again. <laughs> No sooner he was back than he was gone. (laughs) uh, Let's just chalk it up to uh, the technology, man. All right. uh, Brother, we appreciate you too. Thank you, you, Sam, for being a part of the program tonight and having this discussion as a representative of one of the two states, North Carolina and California, that have exception clauses which allow 
involuntary servitude. Uh, we'd like to think that we did a good job today of breaking down this thing called involuntary servitude, the crime against humanity, and also the counter arguments uh, against it, and even tracing it back to its origins. Um, we are not going to be on air in the next two weeks. Instead, we're going to replay the speech by Frederick Douglass that we did in a two-part, um, two-episode series. I denounced the so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud. Like those films we mentioned, we believe that this is a must-read for everybody. And if you don't want to read it, you can always hear it uh, recited wait, aloud. Wait one second. One second, Max. Are you sure about next week? Next week is the uh, 30th. Okay, sorry, not next week. The week after that, the two weeks after that. So it's the 7th <laughs> yes. and the 14th will be out. Yes, the 7th and the 14th. So next week we'll be back. My bad. All right. Um, yeah, it's been a hell of a show, man. I think we drove home what we the points we wanted to make and educate the people who are listening on this particular issue. Any final comments you want to make uh, before you yeah, give on? Yeah, I'm going to let every, I'm, I'm going to let everybody know that they have homework. Because two hours goes by really fast, and there is a lot of legal history behind involuntary servitude. So you're going to have to go to our Facebook page, Abolition Today. I'm going to try to get some of it up also on our uh, Instagram page, uh, not Instagram, Twitter page. That's Abolition Today 1. It's a lot of information. So go there, read all the cases so you can see how involuntary servitude progressed through the courts. So they had the backing of the judiciary with all of this. So definitely do that. Uh, we, we definitely want to thank our sponsors and partners. First of all, thanks to Sean, thanks to Sam, thanks to Corinne, uh, thanks for TAG. Uh, I'm going to organize that information. Yeah, and John. Yeah, John for being in the house. Thank you, Tribal, for that delicious dinner that you made us and those delicious deviled eggs that you made for us as well. Uh, Max, Tribal, excellent host. You know, so it's always a pleasure being here in the center. I'm going to start coming down a little more often, at least once a month, uh, if you'll have me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you have homework, and I'm going to organize the information that uh, – tag came in with i was jotting it down on the fly so i'll organize it you'll also find that information up on our abolition today facebook page uh so finally i'd just like to jump into thanking our sponsors and our partners jailhouse lawyer speak the i am we ubuntu prison advocacy network sama urge quakers uplifting racial justice the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, where we're broadcasting live from this evening, and Max is there every week. Prismatic Dreams, the Abolished Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash abolitiontoday. And our Facebook page for all the news, information, and music you hear on the program. Follow us on Twitter at Abolition Today, the number one. Abolition Today is on, available on all major podcast platforms and on Apple Music. So this week's Bridging the Gap, we have a really special treat this week, as we do every week. Well, we have Ida B. Wells' speech, The Convict Lease System, 
And this was delivered on August 8, 1893. And it's read by this guy that you all know. His name is Max Parkins. And it's going to be accompanied by The World is a Ghetto by War. We'll be back next Sunday, God willing, April 30th, with another master class on slavery abolition at Abolition Today University, as Corinne called it earlier. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. 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 The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition by Ida B. Wells. 1862 to 1931, read by Max Parkers. Chapter 3, The Convict Lease System. The convict lease system and lynch law are twin infamies which flourish hand in hand in many of the United States. They are the two great outgrowths and results of the class legislation under which our people suffer today. Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Washington claim to be too poor to maintain state convicts within prison walls. Hence, the convicts are leased out to work for railroad contractors, mining companies, and those who farm large plantations. These companies assume charge of the convicts, work them as cheap labor, and pay the states a handsome revenue for their labor. Nine-tenths of these convicts are Negroes. There are two reasons for this. One, the religious, moral, and philanthropic forces of the country, all the agencies which tend to uplift and reclaim the degraded and ignorant, are in the hands of the Anglo-Saxon. Not only has very little effort been made by these forces to reclaim the Negro from the ignorance, immorality, and shiftlessness with which he is charged, but he has always been and is now rigidly excluded from the enjoyment of these elevating influences towards which he felt voluntarily drawn. In communities where Negro population is largest and these counteracting influences most needed, the doors of the churches, schools, concert halls, lecture rooms, young men's Christian associations, and women's Christian temperance unions have always been and are now closed to the Negro who enters on his own responsibility. Only as a servant or inferior being placed in one corner is he admitted. The white Christian and moral influences have not only done little to prevent the Negro from becoming a criminal, but they have deliberately shut him out of everything which tends to make for a good citizenship. To have Negro blood in the veins makes one unworthy of consideration, a social outcast, a leper even in the church. Two Negro Baptist ministers, Reverend John Frank, the pastor of the largest colored church in Louisville, Kentucky, and Reverend C.H. Parrish, president of the Eckstein Northern University at Cane Springs, Kentucky, were in the city of Nashville, Tennessee in May when the Southern Baptist Convention was in session. They visited the meeting and took seats in the body of the church. At the request of the association, a policeman was called and escorted these men out because they would not take the seats set apart for colored persons in the back part of the tabernacle. Both these men are scholarly of good moral character and members of the Baptist denomination, but they were Negroes, and that eclipsed everything else. This spirit 
is even more rampant in the more remote, densely populated plantation districts. The Negro is shut out and ignored, left to grow up in ignorance and vice. Only in the gambling dens and saloons does he meet any sort of welcome. What wonder that he falls into crime? Two, the second reason our race furnishes so large a share of the convicts is that the judges, juries, and other officials of the courts are white men who share these prejudices. They also make the laws. It is wholly in their power to extend clemency to white criminals and mete out severe punishment to black criminals for the same or lesser crimes. The Negro criminals are mostly ignorant, poor, and friendless, possessing neither money to employ lawyers nor influential friends. They are sentenced in large numbers to long terms of imprisonment for petty crimes. The People's Advocate, a Negro journal of Atlanta, Georgia, has the following observation on the prison showing of that state for 1892. Quote, unquote, it is an astounding fact that 90% of the state's convicts are colored, 194 white males and two white females, 1,710 colored males and 44 colored females. Is it possible that Georgia is so prejudiced that she won't convict her white lawbreakers? Yes, it is just so, but we hope for a better day. George W. Cable, author of the Grandissimes, Dr. Sevier, etc., in a paper on the convict lease system, read before prison congress in Kentucky, says, In the Georgia Penitentiary, in 1880, in a total of nearly 1,200 convicts, only 22 prisoners were serving as low a term as one year, only 52 others as low as two years, only 76 others as low a term as three years. While those who were under sentences of 10 years and over numbered 538, although 10 years, as the rules show, is the utmost length of time that a convict can be expected to remain alive in the Georgia penitentiary. Six men were under sentence for a simple assault and battle, mere fisticuffs, one of two years, two of five years, and one of six years, one of seven, and one of eight. For larceny, Three men were serving under sentences of 20 years. Five were sentenced each for 15 years, one for 14 years, six for 12 years, 35 for 10 years, and 172 from one year up to nine years. In other words, a large majority of these 1,200 convicts had, for simple stealing, without breaking in or violence, been virtually condemned to be worked and misused to death. One man was under a 20-year sentence for hog stealing. Twelve men were sentenced to the South Carolina Penitentiary on no other finding but a misdemeanor commonly atoned for by a fine of a few dollars, and which thousands of the state's inhabitants, white, are constantly committing with impunity. The carrying of concealed weapons. Fifteen others were sentenced for mere assault and battery. In Louisiana, a man was sentenced to the penitentiary for 12 months for stealing $5 worth of gunny sacks. Out of 2,378 convicts in the Texas prison in 1882, only two were under sentence of less than two years' length, and 509 of these were under 20 years of age. 
Mississippi's penitentiary roll for the same year showed 70 convicts between the ages of 12 and 18 years of age serving long terms. Tennessee showed 12 boys under 18 years of age under sentences of more than a year. And the North Carolina penitentiary had 234 convicts under 20 years of age serving long terms. Mr. Cable goes on to say in another part of his admirable paper, quote, unquote, in the Georgia convict course, only 15 were whites among 215 who were under sentences of more than 10 years. What is true of Georgia is true of the convict lease system everywhere. The details of vice, cruelty, and death thus fostered by the states whose treasuries are enriched thereby equals anything from Siberia. Men, women, and children are herded together like cattle in the filthiest quarters and chained together while at work. The Chicago Interocean recently printed an interview with a young colored woman who was sent six months to the convict farm in Mississippi for fighting. The costs, etc., lengthened the time to 18 months. During her imprisonment, she gave birth to two children, but lost the first one from premature confinement caused by being tied up by the thumbs and punished for failure to do a full day's work. She and other women testified that they were forced to criminal intimacy with the guards and cook to get food to eat. Hi, my name is Jeanette Smith. I am a slavery abolitionist. Some of you may know me. I'm doing this recording because I would like to ask if any of you can help with some financial assistance. Max and Yusuf do not like to ask for money, so I would like to ask on their behalf because they and other abolitionists pull money out of their own pockets, and this is so important. So if you can help, you can find the information at the top of the Facebook page for Abolition Today. Thank you. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton. (laughs) 